Hello and welcome to episode 37 of Blokeology, evidence-based health, fitness and lifestyle. I'm Dr. Ewan Lawson and today for the first episode of 2019, I've got an interview with registered dietitian Rini McGregor. So I'll tell you a little bit more about Rini in a minute, but first I just wanted to have a quick catch up about um, where we are with things and thinking ahead for the new year. Now, one of the things that I've avoided doing this year myself is setting some new year resolutions. I think there's lots of evidence, a little bit of evidence around this goal setting. And I think a lot of us have had that experience where we set some goals and, you know, by the end of January, they've all turned to dust. I've got some things I want to try to develop, but I don't really think that the turn of the year has necessarily changed that. And so I'm just going to carry on and, um, continue to develop those things that I was thinking about anyway. So it's not a big change, but what I'm really keen to do is just to reinforce good habits I've got around my health and to try to improve things. As I've described in the podcast before, I I do a reasonable amount of exercise, but one of the things that I'm not very good at is strength and conditioning. And so that's one of the things I really want to concentrate on this year, trying to build a habit, doing a little bit of weight, getting a little bit stronger, and hopefully the aim is make myself a little bit more resilient, uh, able to um, less able to succumb to injuries or torn calf muscles has been a real problem for me in this past year. So um, one thing I have decided to do as well, which I haven't said anywhere else, is that I've decided to do a race again this year of some kind of event. I didn't do anything last year. Um, and I've actually signed up for the Lakeland 55K in June. So that's 55 kilometers around the trails, starting from Ambleside. So that's that's quite a challenge. I've run marathons in the past and I've run trail marathons. This is just a little bit further, an extra 13 kilometers. I think it officially qualifies as an ultra, but kind of, you know, the insane distances people run these days for ultras, it seems pretty lightweight in comparison, but it's definitely going to challenge me and it's going to make sure I get out and I have to do some regular training for that and a little bit of a focus. My main aim for this is I'm not going to set a time I'm not putting myself under any pressure. My main aim is that I want to turn up and enjoy the event as much as you can for something like this. My biggest problem with doing events in the past has been I've really not had a good time doing it. So my main aim for the event is really to turn up and you know it to be a pleasure to do rather than something that is um, painful and a punishment rather than anything else. Okay, so let me tell you a little bit more about Rini, who's coming up in a minute. Now, Rini's a best-selling author, and she's a registered dietitian, but in particular that she's a perfor- she's very much a leading performance and eating disorder specialist dietitian. And she's got many years of experience. I think, you know, something like 15 years experience working with elite athletes and coaches and other people to, to kind of really enhance sports performance and manage and also to manage eating disorders. And so she's delivered lots of support to athletes over the past. But the interesting thing about Rini and the really great thing about the conversation is that she just has such a normal approach to it. And it's so balanced. It isn't about, you know, you're not going to hear on this podcast and this discussion with Rini a whole lot of tips about how to, you know, the kind of the nuances of the special things you can do to that will just tweak your diet. It's actually a very normal, a very appropriate approach for everybody. And I think she understands the particular requirements of athletes, particularly high-performing athletes, but her overall approach is a, is a much more inclusive one, and I think we'll get a lot out of that. Um, I really enjoyed speaking to her, and we had um, we shared a lot about just kind of how to go about developing healthy lifestyles and healthy approaches to life around food as well. 
Um, one of the things we discuss is orthorexia, which um, we talk a little bit more about in the podcast. It isn't an officially a diagnosis yet, but it's about people that are a bit obsessed, um, develop unhealthy obsessions with the food they eat and clean eating can be a kind of um, a factor around that as well. Rini explains more as we go through. But the first thing that we started talking about was um, a new organization that she set up called Train Brave. And she's the co-founder with a chap called Tom Fairbrother. Now, Tom was a very quick marathon runner, an iron distance triathlete, but he also did suffer in the past from an eating disorder. And Rini's experience and her professional aspects of her life dealing with athletes with eating disorders that they've both become very passionate about helping people to um, deal with uh, eating disorders in and around um, sport and where the athletic performance is involved. And I think they're really keen enough to make sure that athletes can feel brave enough to share their concerns and that they can um, ask each other for help as well. So the first thing I asked Rini to tell me about was a little bit more about how she got involved with Tom and to tell me a little bit more about Train Brave. Probably May when he contacted me and just said, look, you probably don't know who I am, but um, this is my story. I've just listened to you on a podcast, believe it or not. And I was talking about eating disorders and, and what it's about and, and how passionate I am and how I want to change the message. And he said, I want to do this with you. Let's make this happen. And so we started talking and decided to come up with uh, this campaign but we didn't want it just to be a one-off campaign or a one-off event like this is an ongoing thing like we we've, we've committed to this um and yesterday was the launch event to kind of find out what people wanted like I, what I said to Tom was you know I do this a lot I do a lot of presentations I do a lot of work I'm you know I'm always being asked to do lectures on it and talk to other health professionals on it but what we need to know is what what is it that people need in order to change and and how do we change the message across sport and um so we decided to do an event where we had myself and um, a really good colleague of mine called Nikki Key who's a fantastic endocrinologist and works we work very closely together um and she was sort of talking about the long term effects of um underfueling and um overtraining and I, from a hormonal aspect and I was talking about the psychology and the nutrition aspect behind it and then Tom gave his sort of personal story and we also had Rowan Priest and Anna Boniface um, who also spoke very openly about their personal stories um, and then we kind of had this like this panel discussion at the end and um, it was just I mean I think people could have sat there all night asking questions it was just um, it was it was very overwhelming but also incredibly um, just I don't know what the word is it's just it was it, it in some ways, I'm so grateful that everybody was so supportive. In other ways, it breaks my heart that so many people are struggling. And um, I found it very emotional. Like I left, um, I left London, I got on the train back home. And I, I always feel very exhausted when I've done presentations because you yeah. do, you know, I'm, I'm not naturally an extrovert. So when I'm putting myself out there, it, 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 I find it quite over, you know, quite, quite um, tiring and, and exhausting. And and I couldn't help but have a little cry on the way home. You know, it's just that kind of, my God, there's there's so many people struggling. Why is this happening? Um, so, yeah, so the aim is that we've had a lot of feedback and, and, and the things that people are asking for are more events like that where they can understand it um, with some practical help to help them move forwards. More coaching 
education. So everybody's saying mm-hmm. coaches need to be educated. People want us to educate other health professionals. So they want us to run um, workshops for physios, GPs, um, other nutritional practitioners, you know, fitness industry. Um, and they also want some sort of screening, you know, some sort of screening tool, which can then kind of signpost people to get the help they needed. So we've got a lot of work to do. But, um, you know, Tom and I are determined to to change this this message and, and make make this you know, sort of change this prevalence of eating disorders in sport and, and kind of help people to just enjoy sport for what it should be, which is health and fun and participation. And it shouldn't yeah. always be about numbers and podium finishes and what weight you are. And, you know, I, I'm a runner um, and I've been in that place where my performance almost defined me. Like, you know, it, I was, a, you know, I'm a sub 330 marathon runner that defined me like it was it was ridiculous and it was almost like it, it overtook my life for it for a while and I think um because of the work I do I I was very aware of that very very quickly and I was like hang on a minute really this is this is not a healthy path to go down so you know I, I definitely pulled myself away from from that and I actually took myself away from the whole club environment because it was a club environment that was for me and I'm not saying I'm not blaming clubs but for me it was that that was triggering and driving that need to prove I was good enough, like to get the numbers in and, and check my 400 meter times. And, 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 and it wasn't healthy. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think we all get caught up in it and it's, it's actually about trying to help people to, um, to just enjoy sport. I mean, I love running. Like I, you know, I've just come back from the Himalayas and, did a trail race out there but I put no pressure on myself to race I just enjoyed the journey and yeah. it's and that's for me is for me running's about having adventures so as long as I can put my trainers on and go and have a little adventure even if it's just like finding a new trail then then I'm happy and and that's that you know that's what it means to me I think that's um well, that's fantastic and, and very interesting in a lot of conversations I've had with runners in the past few months I've been on the podcast have been a lot of folk have got stuff out I've never been a running club person and I always like just going out on my own and going out in the fells and and as exactly as you've described there have always relished just finding actually a really great run is when I discover a new little bit of footpath I've not been on before <laughs> rather than just getting out the rut and actually that is my kind of most memorable thing for the day and I write it on my little habit minimal journaling thing that's a kind of really special moment but having said that and being a bit skeptical at running clubs a lot of the people that have come on I've got a tremendous amount out of them even at the very much more kind of recreational end or brand new to the sport and I've got an enormous amount out of the community, but I've always been nervous about the competitive aspects. I mean, it's a very individual thing, isn't it? But it, it could go either way. Absolutely. And I think, I think the thing is, it's not, it's not that running clubs are not good. Of course, they're an amazing community. Like London City Runners hosted our event yesterday, and they mm. have got this incredible clubhouse down in Bermondsey. It's amazing. And such a brilliant community there. Like, really supportive, really safe. Um, just It just felt like a really nice club to be part of. And you don't have to necessarily join. You just turn up of a, of a Sunday morning and you can, they have different times and different levels of running and you just go out with the group that you're most comfortable with. I mean, that that to me is running. Like that's, mm. you know, there's, there's definitely something about camaraderie in running that is so important. And, and I, I, I'm like you, I, generally like running on my own because for me running's my time 
when I completely switch off, I leave my phone behind. It's it is just about me. But then like this today, I went for a run at lunchtime with a really good friend of mine. And we try and run probably once, twice a week together, because actually, mm. it's our space to kind of offload, have a little chat, <laughs> try and put the world to rights in our own mind, you know. Um, and it really helps me to kind of order my thoughts. Because, you know, my job is, is really demanding of me, like, you know, I'm constantly helping people and helping them to challenge their mindsets. And, you know, this time of year is particularly difficult. I've got a lot of individuals who are really struggling with mm. the amount of food there is and, and how mm. to get out of situations. And, and, and they're just anxious. They're so, so anxious. And, you know, a lot of my work is about getting them to sort of breathe and 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 trying to be that rational voice that they can't be because they're so anxious and so my my job is massively massively demanding of my time and my headspace um and equally you know my life is quite busy because i'm you know my clinic is one part of what i do but then obviously i lecture at universities i'm part of um different advisory boards for um you know, eating disorder groups and, mm -hmm. and national government bodies. And um, so I'm pulled in lots of different directions. Um, <laughs> so, so there's not an awful lot of time for me sometimes. And so it's nice to be able to kind of put that side, you know, that sort of time aside and almost kind of like combine my social time with my run time. So, you know, yeah. it's, it, it's a nice way of doing something. We were talking about it's my birthday in a few weeks and and we were talking about, well, what are we going to do for your birthday? I was like, well, we're going to run, obviously. Um, and she said, you should have run breakfast and bubbles. And I was like, do you know what? That sounds perfect. And it's that, you know, yeah. it's just, but it's, it, yeah, I think it's, um, I think running clubs have a place and I don't want to put them down because I think there's some brilliant running clubs out there. But I think what we have to remember is that a lot of runners, triathletes, cyclists, you know people who get into this and become very very serious about it often tend to be a certain type of mentality mm. and that mentality which i would admit i am also part of you know is that kind of very determined focused perfectionist driven highly sensitive highly critical <laughs> fairly obsessive you know like those things are not bad traits to have they they're good things to have if they're managed well but the problem is you put that trait into a very competitive environment and you don't look after it and it becomes off kilter. And it's when it becomes off kilter, when those behaviors become more and more and more obsessive and compulsive. Yeah. That's when obviously we start to see the sort of dysfunctional relationships with food yeah. training coming across because it's really about something else. You know, it's about kind of much more deeper rooted problems it's about that inability to accept who you are it's about the perception of yourself like I've got a guy at the moment I'm working with and I, a lot of his messages are I'm crap I'm crap I'm crap which of course he isn't he's incredible he's a really amazing inspiring young athlete and he's definitely not crap but his perception of himself is that and mm -hmm. And that's the problem is that he doesn't really want to feel that. He doesn't want to experience that. And so it's it's much easier to deflect that onto running, training, food, because you yeah. can control that. You can contain that. And it and also when you restrict your intake, you numb all those emotions. So if you are somebody who's struggling with anxiety or 
depression or you know these these uncomfortable feelings uh, of self-doubt insecurity then you don't want to feel those because it's really horrible it's a really horrible place to be and so you look for answers you look to try and numb it you look to try and improve yourself and 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 the obvious is well i can if i can prove myself through my running if i can prove myself through my diet then you know that's what they're trying to do and but obviously that's also not the answer so So let's. I, 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 you know, it's it's absolutely. It's so fascinating to to hear you talk about it and these kind of the, the people that get into these sort of difficulties. So one of the reasons I really we really wanted to talk today was about orthorexia and you know when healthy eating goes bad. That's the, the, the title of your book. And it, it I, I mean, I really loved the book. It really kind of struck with me as well. I was practically cheering when I read it. Insofar as it's just a kind of such a, a good evidence based common sense approach to kind of diet and. Uh, something we can talk about briefly in a bit maybe but the, the challenges of finding good advice in the nutrition field are are substantial in this in this world but i was wondering if the first thing you could do is just tell people a little bit about what orthorexia is and yeah, you know, you've course. started some of the impacts there of course and it all ties into what you've already been talking about but perhaps just defining what orthorexia is and how it can affect people Sure, of course. So orthorexia is um, it's a fairly new term. And if you break it down into what is what it, it def- definition is, it's the obsession with eating correctly, or the obsession with eating purely. And so it came about because of, I suppose, the, the reason why the, it's become such it's become more apparent is because we have this whole, you know, hashtag clean eating type trend, which which I think is this is not as as big as it was a few years ago, but it's definitely still there. People still talk about eating clean, and you know, it, it, it's it's definitely there. And so, so what happens is it's not necessarily associated with calories or um, uh, even, uh, yeah, it's not really about weight loss. Even it's very much about eating in a certain way. It's about eating very very purely, not putting any. Uh, and I'm putting this inverted commas, not putting any kind of like contaminants in your body or any processed food in your body. But yet, you know, we can talk about this, but what does that even mean processed? You know, it's like, yeah. and, and I think, I think one of the reasons why orthorexia is, is actually very, very difficult to diagnose is because there are so many wellness trends out there. You know, we've, we've, we've had sugar free, we've had gluten free, we've had paleo. We've had uh, juicing, uh, detox, alkaline, you know, to a certain degree, I would even, without getting shot, but I'd even put veganism in there, you know, like there's, okay. <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot of these wellness trends that come along. And I guess it gives people a, a disguise to hide behind because a lot of the, a lot of these, these, these food trends basically restrict your intake. I mean, that's what's really going on. Um, and, and that's the bottom line. And they give this sort of false promise that somehow if you follow these trends, you're going to you're going to have this amazing gl- glowing skin and this amazing, gorgeous kind of shiny hair. And um, you're going to have the perfect lifestyle. You're going to meet the perfect partner. You're going to drive the most amazing. I mean, that's that's what they're promising, you know. But of course, we both know that's that's not that's not life. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, so I think. So with, with with orthorexia, it is it's a fairly new um, eating disorder, um, and at the moment it's not diagnosable. So things like eating disorders like anorexia and bulimia and binge eating disorder, they are part of the the DSM, so the the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 
um, for mental health. And so there's there's strict kind of questions you ask and then you can kind of diagnose, yes, this person has this. With orthorexia, we don't have that at the moment. And one of the biggest challenges is because of the wellness trends that are out there, because it's very, very hard to to ask the the right questions and get the accurate answers yeah. in order to know whether somebody really is struggling yeah. or whether somebody is just kind of putting putting a bit of a they're trialing out something new and probably after a month they'll get bored and they'll go back to their normal eating habits so it's a difficult one but i am part of the international um task force for orthorexia which is a group of sort of 12 of us from across the world who get together once a year but we talk in between but we get because we're all from across the world so we get together once a year and it's a mixture of uh, practitioners like myself and academics and so a lot of there's a lot of work being done in in that area and like uh, this year we met in Rome um where we presented as a group, collective group, about our experiences of orthorexia in our clinical practice and, and our academic study. And then since then, some new studies have been coming out and we're all asked to review those studies so that we're basically gaining, we're gaining enough evidence to start putting together some very clear diagnostic criteria. But as with everything, these things take time. So um, it is a bit of a slow work. And obviously, we're all doing this as part of our main job <laughs> you know so yeah. it, it, it's always it's always a bit slow but but we are getting there yeah I, this my sense reading the book is that i know it's not and you've already said it that it's not diagnosable it's not a dsm5 kind of diagnosable disease just yet i mean there's obviously lots of critics about things like dsm5 and other anyway in terms of you know um it's potential for medicalizing other problems that's not the sense i get at all and i'm quite usually got fairly low threshold for worrying about that kind of thing but I, reading about orthorexia, I didn't get that sense at all that I, that it's in that in that um, uh, I'd put it in that bundle. It feels very real to me, and it's something that clearly some people are going to suffer from very badly. I guess the important thing to highlight to people is that you go into some detail in the book about what's involved in orthorexia, and as you said, there people who just fiddle with their diet a bit and do something slightly differently for a short period that doesn't automatically mean that you'd suddenly throw accusations of orthorexia around. It's clearly a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, and I there's mean, a big lap. Of, there's a big overlap with anorexia, and also you certainly do with well, not a big overlap, but there, there is a potential overlap in the sort of Venn diagram of anorexia and obsessive compulsive disorder and orthorexia there are people who could have el- there are elements there which are shared but they're very but their orthorexia appears to be a very distinct disorder absolutely and that was something that we did actually i mean also i wrote the book last november mm. and when we had this meeting in rome in uh march this year 2018 um one of the things that we were absolutely clear on was that this is an this is a standalone um yeah. disorder it is not it's not a class of anorexia. There was some discussion of, mm-hmm. is it a class of anorexia? It's definitely not a class of anorexia. Often what happens is people can develop orthorexia and it can fast move into anorexia because if they become very restrictive and their weight drops very suddenly, unfortunately, like as soon as your weight drops, it starts to affect your 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 you know your ability for your brain to work, mm. and that's when the kind of irrational and um, irrational fears come in, and and the heightened anxiety comes in. So, so we do see this kind of um, movement from 
orthorexia into anorexia. And equally, we see anorexia into orthorexia, where you might have somebody who's restored their weight, but still lives by very, very strict food rules. And yeah. and so, but what we, we were very, very clear about is that orthorexia has a massive, massive um, overlap with compulsive obsessive yeah. disorder. Yeah, I did so notice that. And, I'm gonna, and that struck me because it wasn't something that would occur to me straight away. But as soon as you laid it out in the book, it you could really see it. Yeah, it was a it's a very obsessive um, condition, and and I guess to a certain degree, like I've just reviewed a paper which is not out yet, but as I said, we're reviewing papers, and I've just reviewed a paper where um, it's very clear that there's a very a, a much higher risk of orthorexia in individuals that um, overexercise, mm. so um, or or exercise more excessively shall we say because again this is this is a conversation i mean you know it's, it's a conversation i had with a very good friend of mine um who who's just written a piece on it for um uh for her blog but you know we're, we're constantly told we should be doing more exercise we're almost made to feel guilty if we don't move on a daily basis and yet you look at the national guidelines the national guidelines state you need to do like 150 minutes a week um, and that's to maintain good health. Okay, so so that can translate as what you know, however you want to translate it as. But it's not a huge amount, to be fair. And um, we're also being bombarded with um, studies that tell us that you know doing exercise really improves our mental health. And there's no there's there's no doubt about that. We've we've got the evidence to prove it. However, what people don't talk about is it's a U-shaped curve. Right. Mm. So it's it's moderate exercise that improves your mental health. It's moderate exercise that improves your cardiovascular health. As soon as you start to kind of go above that, to a certain degree, you are getting into that excessive territory, that kind of slightly extreme behavior. And if you are somebody that is susceptible to to kind of any sort of addiction or compulsive trait, you can see how that becomes a problem. You know, like, mm. I mean, we probably both know people who who can't not train on a daily basis. You know, mm. even if they're unwell, even if they've got a pain. You know, like, I, I, I didn't run yesterday um, for various reasons. One, I've actually got a slight niggle in my calf. And two, um, I was exhausted. And I knew I had a long day ahead of me in London. And I was just like, do you know what? I don't, it's not necessary. And it, and it doesn't cause me any any anxiety to stop. Or equally, if I have to go, for, if I go for a run and I start running and I think it's not, it's not happening today, mm. I will happily walk home yeah. and not have a problem with it. But yet I know so many people, friends, peers, and obviously clients I work with yeah. who do not know how to sit still. They they cannot do it. They, they, they don't, they just can't. And that is an addiction. That's not, that's not health. That's mm. not healthy. And I guess that's the thing is that what they're saying is if you're already compulsive about an aspect of your life, you're more likely to develop, develop further compulsions with other areas of your life. And yeah. so we know that orthorexia is something that's very common in, in people that overtrain. So what's a classic kind of pattern of eating or, you know, you meant, uh, what kind of things do people start excluding? What kind of things do they start worrying about? What are the kind so, of things you've seen in your clinical practice? There's a couple of different things I've seen. So sometimes they come in because they've, they've had like a health scare. So if they've had a health scare or there's been a family health scare, then that can often be the trigger point for orthorexia, like this anxiety that, that something awful is going to happen. So they need to kind of take control. 
And so they might start with uh, removing sugar, for example. So mm. sugar-free is the big thing. And also because we've just been completely like uh, told that sugar is the, the devil and we should not <laughs> yeah. go near it and it's like the worst thing in the world for us. And yet there is absolutely no causative link that sugar causes obesity. You know, that there is no link. It's, it's yes, we can very much over-consume sugar, which can lead to obesity, but it's not the same thing. So a lot of people will maybe start with avoiding sugar. Um, they might find that doesn't change how they feel because obviously, generally speaking, when you take out a food group rationally, it's not going to affect how you feel about yourself. But obviously, that's the whole point. So then things that might happen are they may decide to go gluten-free because they'll be like, well, I've heard that or I've seen that or this celebrity has said that. And so they'll go down that road. Um, and, and sometimes it can become more and more extreme. So every time they do something and they don't notice the difference or it's not quite enough, then they'll, they'll remove something else and remove something else and remove something else. Sometimes, like I said, it can be um, something very, very extreme, like doing cleansing and detoxing because mm -hmm. they feel that if they can cleanse their body, then somehow they, you know, and then only put like really, really pure ingredients to the point where they might even, you know, um, drive ridiculous number of miles to go to a certain shop to get a certain brand of product because nothing else will do. I mean, that's how obsessive this this can be. Mm. Um, I've also seen a very, very big rise in veganism, mm. which I know, like, I have to be so careful because people, I mean, people... You just get torched me. online for suggesting there's any I, problem with veganism exactly. at all. You just get flamed, I, know, I, I imagine. I will, I will get, <laughs> absolutely. But the thing I want to say is, firstly, I'm vegetarian. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not anti-vegan at all. I actually think being a vegan can be a very, very balanced and good way of eating. Um, however, what I'm seeing, particularly with some of the younger clients I've been working with, is that they come in using veganism as a means of restricting their intake. It's not about, they'll say, oh, it's about the ethics, but you can challenge them on that and they haven't got a clue about the ethics. Mm. It's it's about the fact that it gives them a legitimate reason to remove loads of foods. So mm. they don't have to go out for pizza with their mates. They don't have to go out for milkshakes. They can't eat certain cakes. They can't have ice cream. Do you know what I mean? Like it's become yeah. this legitimate reason. And you can often tell when somebody wants to be vegan for the right reasons because you can just kind of go, okay, well, do you know what? That's fine, but you need to eat this and you need to have this and you need to include that. And then you'll have a balanced vegan diet. And if they go, okay, great, then you know it's for the right reasons. Mm. If they turn around to you and say, oh, but I can't, mm. then you know that this is not about sustainability or ethical reasons or any of those different things. And I think the whole thing about veganism, and there's a, there's a guy that um, I follow on Instagram, and I've met him a couple of times, and he's, he's a really great guy. His name's um, Ryan Andrews, um, and he's in the States, and he talks a lot about sustainability of food and um he is. He does follow a vegan lifestyle, but he doesn't enforce it on people. He doesn't. He does. He's not. He's just. He's very good at explaining that to be more sustainable, you don't need to be vegan. In being more plant based, absolutely. But we also know that certain products, like for example, almond milk, the production of almond milk yep. has a higher cost, to, like in terms mm. of CO two, than cow's milk. 
So that whole argument has gone out the window. You know, it's, yeah. it's like, and and so actually, what he's saying is there are many other ways of of being sustainable. So you don't have to go vegan to be healthy or sustainable. Um, so I think that's you know that's I mean that's a slightly side pro, uh, subject to what we're talking about. But but I am definitely seeing more and more people, and I think there was a big there's been a big rise in health bloggers, food bloggers mm. becoming vegan and and kind of blogging and vlogging their stories and you know that's a massive part yeah. of it all um because again like uh, without orthorexia we know that um there's a few new few studies that have come out now but we know that if you have an instagram account you have 49% higher prevalence of developing orthorexia <laughs> than you do if you don't have an author, uh, don't have an instagram account where it's less than 1% yeah. i mean that big stuff right that's big numbers mm. and and you can understand it because everybody's on social media all the time it's like you're, you're a nobody if you're not it feels like and you basically tend to choose people that kind of you you i suppose you aspire to but you maybe you want to be like or they're kind of all in the same well there's a big confirmation bias thing as well and you tend to the people yeah. that you already agree whose opinions you agree with they're the ones you follow so we're all susceptible to confirmation bias in that regard yeah absolutely and then this kind of this massive echo chamber of the same message being mm. again and again and again and again and again and 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 it gives you validation that, well that's definitely the right way to be whereas in mm. the real world you're constantly got people who are opposing your ideas or questioning your opinion and and that's normal that's not a bad thing like mm. i was talking to a good colleague of mine and she's a psychologist and she was just saying that people are fearful of confrontation like they're almost fearful of having an opinion and saying what they think because they worry about how they're going to be perceived and if that relationship's going to suffer from it mm. and it, and yet confrontation is such an important part of being a human being because you might have an opinion on something but if somebody challenges that it it might make you step up and go oh do you know what that's a really valid point maybe i need to think about this from a slightly different mm. opinion but if you're constantly just believing what you believe how do you learn how do you grow you know you mm. become very fixed in your mindset and i think that's a very dangerous place to be so yeah so a big association with orthorexia and th those that kind of that social media site i mean i i I think you might mention in the book that you think probably orthorexia perhaps has been around for a lot longer than social media, but this it perhaps has really fueled it. It's driven it to a, to a great extent. I mean, definitely from my point of view and my experience, since, since, since social media and Instagram have, especially Instagram have been about, um, it's mm. made my job a lot harder mm. because people remain in their thought processes for a lot longer because, like you said, they've got this confirmation bias that that's what's right even though it might not be it might not be relevant to them i mean that's one of my big messages is that we hear so much like even the whole exercise thing we hear so much but you've got to make the appropriate choices for you at that given moment yeah. you know and that might not be that you you know if you're somebody who has an eating disorder or relative energy deficiency because you're not putting enough energy in doing 2 hours of training a day is not appropriate for you yeah. you know it's going to actually cause you more stress yeah so similarly when a few months ago i think the bbc put a, a a program on about um diabetes and it was about beige carbs and how bad they were and 
And, you know, like my phone didn't stop <laughs> pinging that night because all I got from clients were, well, you said it was okay and da-da-da-da-da and, mm. and, and the BBC have said this. And it's like, yeah, because they're talking about obese, overweight people. They're mm. not talking about you who's, you know, five to ten kilos underweight. And it, and that's the problem is mm. there's so many messages. And when you've got any form of eating disorder, whether it's orthorexia or anorexia or bulimia, you will do everything in your power to maintain that behavior or those behaviors because it makes you feel safe. It makes you feel um, controlled. And even though we know it's not safe, like physically it's not safe and mm. mentally it's not safe, because it feels safe, they will try and maintain it. And so they will always look for validation, constantly look for validation to to maintain those behaviors. Yeah. So let me ask you something about a specific diet, which I'd be really interested in, because it's something that I've heard repeatedly, you know, chatting to people even in recent months on the podcast, and got pilloried the other day for eating porridge for breakfast because it had carbohydrates in, which like, um, what your view on, just a general overview of your thoughts on a low carbohydrate diet? So I'm really, really anti-low carb diet. Um, <laughs> I I have seen the negative impact that has on mm. people's long term health. So whether I'm working, I mean, I've worked with a lot of um, high performance athletes who have gone down that low carb, high fat road because it's what's been advised or suggested to improve performance. Um, so firstly. Just to break down the science behind it, mm. because I think this is what the misconception is. There's this whole concept, this whole misconception that if you eat low carb, high fat, you somehow improve your ability to use fat for fuel and you become this fat burning machine and so you become more efficient and which means you're better at endurance sport. That's the simplistic way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. If you look at the absolute scientific data for it, basically, even if you are using carbohydrate as fuel, sorry, fat as fuel, you still need carbohydrate to make that process happen. So the more depleted you become in carbohydrate, the more difficult that process becomes. So you still become somebody who's not really that efficient. And I know lots of people will evangelize about it. Like, oh, I feel amazing. I feel great. I feel all these wonderful things. And they probably do for the first few months because, you know, like any, any nutritional practice, when you have to change it and you have to focus on getting it right, you're probably a little bit more mindful about the choices you make. So when we don't think about food, like we eat everything like I do, I probably don't notice that, oh, well, I'm going to have an, my fourth biscuit for the day or, I, or I've had oh, I've had a bit of chocolate or what. I probably don't because I don't think about it. Whereas if you have to follow specific rules, then you're like, well, I can't have that because I can only have, you know, I can only eat that with vegetables or I can only have that. So you, you're, you have to be more mindful. So mm. perhaps you've cleaned up your diet a little bit more. You're having more fruit and vegetables. You're not, you know, you're you're kind of maybe you are, you know, maybe your diet wasn't particularly amazing beforehand. And so you do feel the benefits of that. But there's no, all the science has shown that, especially from a performance point of view, mm. it doesn't benefit you because in order to, in order to kind of um, run or train or compete at those very high 
um, paces and intensities you need to for um, competition, only carbohydrate is the fuel you can use. It's the only fuel that can be released quick enough for you to be able to run fast enough, basically. So, so yeah, you can be a, a good, steady plodder on a low-carb, high-fat diet if you want to be. But if you really want to benefit from being faster, then you need to include carbohydrate. The other thing is, is and this is what we were talking, Nikki Key was talking about this yesterday, is that carbohydrate availability around training is the key, key thing when it comes to hormonal cascades and then that adaptation and progression that you need. So without those, without carbohydrate, you, you can't, you won't get all the hormones that you require in order to get um, adaptation, be faster and stronger. And and the other thing is, when you don't have carbohydrate in the body and you're and you're training hard, you're basically raising your cortisol level. Mm. So mm. the higher your cortisol goes, and I've got, I mean, this is the thing I see all the time. Everybody I've worked with that's gone low carb, high fat, or has had a fear of carbs, as in they've got carb phobia and they're training, you do their bloods, you look at their biomarkers, cholesterol, uh, sorry, cortisol is sky high. And as soon as cortisol is sky high, it blocks the pituitary gland. And if you block the pituitary gland, you basically are affecting your thyroid gland, you're affecting your um, production of estrogen or testosterone, you're uh, affecting your production of um, IGF, which is really important. You know, you, you're basically you've messed up everything. And obviously, if you have then chronic low estrogen, low testosterone, you put yourself at a high risk of stress fractures and bone health issues. So, yeah. you know, it, it, it's not worth it, guys. It really is not worth it. And honestly, I wish I could. I mean, obviously, I know I don't have I don't have an academic paper to my hand right here. But from an observational point of view, from my clinic, I have so many case studies that I could present where. It might work for the first six to 12 months, and then you're in this real mess. You're in a real hole, and trying to get out of that hole is is really hard. And, and actually, it's been career-ending for quite a lot of people. Mm. Yeah, very serious. And I, the bit about cortisol really rams, strikes home with me because that's the one marker that people use in terms of long-term health, sleep, stress, mental health. When you start seeing cortisol levels elevated in the longer term, you're really onto a massive loser in yeah. terms of your overall health and the kind as you say that kind of cascade of mental health and psychological issues which feeds into something like orthorexia yeah and as you described there it's a hell of a hole to get out of again it, it's and i've got people who i've worked with for you know two three years um and i don't like working with people for that long just to make that very clear that's not the whole point the whole point is to make myself very redundant and it doesn't <laughs> always take that long to to get people but there are a few people who were so stuck so caught up in this whole low carb high fat uh, being leaner is better you know yeah. like and 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 they're just really struggling to change their mindset because they the underlying thing that's going on is i'm not good enough i'm not worthy enough and so they're trying to prove their validation through their um through their sport through their performance but whatever they do is never enough because yeah. even if they're improving, it's never enough because that's the kind of person they are that they, they constantly need to push and push and push and push and push. And so they then look for validation. So they'll find like I, I was working with a young cyclist um, 
a young, you know, he's on the sort of the GB pathway, and he was very carb phobic, massively so. And um, when he came to see me in clinic, um, we had quite a lot of discussions around this, and 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 you know, and I said, okay, do you know what? Fine, you show me the evidence that low carb is best for you. You you find me the the articles, the papers, whatever you're reading from. So I gave him my laptop. And he came up with these these articles and and we started reading the articles and I was like, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because you've basically cherry picked what you've wanted to read. Yeah. And yet the whole article is saying something completely different. And, <laughs> and when I presented it to him like that, he was a bit like, yeah, OK. So he was, you know, he was he needed he found his validation yeah. to prove that he, what he wanted to hear was right. Mm. Um I mean, he's done brilliantly. We've managed to really change his mindset and he's really happy and his bone health has improved within six months. Mm. Um, you know, he was he was 18 years old and he had osteopenia in his spine. Gosh, so, and, that, so those, yeah, I mean, so that's thinning of the bone. You just, you know, you're only a step off osteoporosis at that point. At 18 yeah. years of age, that's horrific. Yeah. That really suggests a, long, a serious problem, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm seeing 20, 24-year-olds with... Um, bone health of 90 year olds mm. yeah because because people are so obsessive with being the best and you know i don't know you know i guess it is it's about validation of themselves and it's it's about that discomfort they feel in themselves and they're trying so hard to make themselves feel better and what they don't realize is that the only way you feel better is to accept yourself yeah. which is flaws and all you know yeah. and we don't we don't, we're not all perfect that that humans are not they're just not perfect and i'm the first to admit i have many faults and you know and it's just also it's human nature to have bad days it's human nature to not get it right i mean mm. you know i was again talking to my my running buddy this morning and we we're both saying we've just been feeling just been a lot and like, i mean i'm not immune to self doubt you know, I, I really struggle with self-doubt and, and people always get really surprised when I say that. And I'm like, but why? I'm a human being. And of course, I'm going to have days where I think, am I doing everything I could be? Should I be doing more? And and I think what I found fascinating recently is, as I said to you earlier, I've, I've just come back from Nepal where I did a trail race in, in the Himalayas. And, and it was an incredibly life-affirming experience. And it really made me see living in the western world you're constantly under pressure to prove your worth and and that has to come through your achievements or, or how many likes you have on instagram or what you perform like or where you are in the career ladder and it's like why mm -hmm. because actually when i was in nepal it was more about everybody was just surviving and actually nobody cared what you did for a living they just you know a smile was all they wanted from you yeah. uh, you know, and I just, it, it really kind of, it really made me think about the society we live in and how we seem to be actually creating these, these problems, yeah. you know, like we have such big mental health problems. We have no resources for the number of people that need them. And yet we're doing nothing to be proactive about preventing them. And that's, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we've obviously set up Train Brave, but obviously that's yeah. just one very small group of people trying to do something in this massive ocean of, of, of issues and um you know i think i think that's the bottom line is that 
until we all learn to manage our expectations and learn to to manage our manage our yeah our achievements and realize that we, we are more than we are defined by more than yeah. what we do yeah um i think until we get to that point we're going to constantly see these different issues occurring i know it's really um there's a risk that it becomes across as really dull and it's not a quick fix and it's all about those expectations. But the thing that I liked about your book particularly was just your emphasis on moderation. And I <laughs> guess that kind of applies to almost every applies to the diet suite. And it's like the carb thing. I mean, I know you're dealing with a lot of high performance athletes and other things as well, but we could probably all do with reducing our carbohydrates a little in terms of the really crummy ones we take unintentionally and unmindfully. But for most of us, that's all we need to do. It's just a moderate, you know, we need to moderate the carbohydrates we take in, in moderation yeah. rather than going crazy and, re- you know, sacking them all. Um, yeah, and it, yeah, but I think, I think we right. also need to moderate our ambitions as well. And so or me- moderate our expectations is the kind of thing you're saying that actually we need to stop imagining we're going to be these kind of, you know, we're going to get sprinkled with fairy dust and, you know, unicorns will fly and we'll be the yeah. most amazing Instagram million followers kind of types and guess to take pleasure in slightly different things in life. And until we move to that, we're, I'm not sure how to make that change come about though. <laughs> no. And, and I think you're right. And the, and the whole thing about carbs is that it got such a bad press and, mm. and, you know, it is very easy to overconsume carbs. It's very easy yeah. to overconsume the wrong carbs. But if you overconsume protein, if you overconsume fat, yeah. you are still overconsuming calories and you will still put on weight. Yeah. You know, carbs just got demonized. Um, I, I, and I think that's because they're also the ones that particularly, you know, through confectionery and things, they're the ones yeah. that are in front of us all the time. So they're the ones that particularly we are. And, and I would say still being demonized. There's still a very strong lobby pushing very hard that ca- carbs are fundamentally a disaster area and are really the root of all evil rather than saturated fats that kind of whole dichotomy that whole kind of the, the two camps arguing with each other and they're like i feel a bit like they're two like two bold men arguing over a comb in terms of the evidence and that the the path is almost i you know the the, the true story is almost certainly somewhere in the middle in moderation in middle, definitely and i think i mean if you if, if anybody wants any um any sort of kind of evidence or kind of validation that carbs are fine to eat and they don't cause all the evil things that they've been suggested that the guy I would suggest that you follow on Instagram is that is called the nutritional advocate but he's fantastic I mean I work with Alan quite a lot and um I I love Alan I think he is just brilliant and if I'm ever really struggling <laughs> someone's giving me a hard time I'm like Alan can you just can you just does he wade in say. for you? Yeah, exactly. He's he's fantastic. He's really, really good. Um, and he's really flying the flag for for kind of proper nutritional scientific evidence. Yeah. Um but and I honestly, honestly think people should follow him and and listen to what he's got to say because he he knows his stuff. Yeah. Um and yeah, I think moderation, acceptance, uh, <laughs> being kinder, giving <laughs> yourself, you know, like stop cracking the whip, be just let yourself off the hook a little bit. Um, and, and you know what, I have to, I have to actively do these things myself, you know, like when it comes to sort of letting myself off the hook, I had a friend text me this morning saying, you're doing an awful lot of stuff. Um, are you overworking? And and it like the the question that, you know, the answer is probably yes, but that's because I'm very, very passionate about what I do. And I really genuinely care about uh, people just getting it sounds boring, but people just getting to that point of balance and acceptance and realizing that we're all we're all fine as we are. We don't have to keep proving that we're we need to be something more to be accepted 
like you don't you just have to you know I was I was saying talking to people yesterday and I said you know if I lost everything tomorrow if I if you know I my clinic went or everything I lost tomorrow the one thing I know I can hold true is that I genuinely care and that for me is enough to know Mm. that I'm enough if that makes sense so like yesterday um I'm not very I'm not really into Christmas I'm really not I'm not a great fan of Christmas and I'm I have found these last few weeks quite challenging because Mm. I'm not really big on Christmas and um I did say I did put, put a post up this morning to say I actually had the best Christmas present ever yesterday which was the fact that we made a difference and People are talking about Train Brave. They're talking about their problems. One person texted me and said, after the event yesterday, I went and had pizza for the first time in years. I mean, Mm. those are the sorts of things that make me feel happy, that people are getting balanced. Because, again, I mean, one of the things I always talk about is food is so much more than just fuel. You know, food is, it's, it's, for me, it's about connection. It's about, relationships i mean i love nothing more than sitting with my friends around a table talking and i don't often care what's being served up to me i mean i i can't even remember half the time what i've eaten but what i will remember is i've laughed lots or i've had a really interesting conversation with somebody and i i leave that evening feeling lifted and happy and that's got nothing to do with food that's got to do with the fact that i've made connections with people and i've i've you know i've I've, I've come away feeling um, lighter and happier, you know. So I think mm. it's really important to remember that that food is more than fuel and you're not going to find happiness through food ever. I think yeah, that's I, absolutely. And I, one of, that's one of the interesting things I've always thought about the Mediterranean diet, which I think you mentioned in the book as being like people get good value from it. But I mean, some of the evidence around it's a bit kind of inconsistent and I'm sure, not, certainly not sure it's a flying example of a low-carb diet necessarily in the way that they suggest. But also they've, what they've done with the Mediterranean diet is they've stripped out the social context as well. And it might perhaps be that the social context was a large bit of the bit that made it so wonderful that the way people ate together, ate seasonally, and there was yeah. a social element to food as well, rather than just it being fuel. Uh, it's entirely possible. There's, I mean, there's, the evidence isn't there one way or t'other, so I'm just speculating. But you can't just necessarily strip out the social element from food and something like that, those Mediterranean diets and improved cardiovascular outcomes. Maybe it was all about just being with people. I, I completely agree with you. And like, I, was, I was visiting a friend in Norway earlier this year, and one of the things that I noticed was that there really wasn't these extremes of body types that we see in the UK. Like there wasn't extremely uh, thin people and mm-hmm. there wasn't extremely overweight people. Everybody was fairly similar and, and, and athletic looking. Uh-huh. And, and, and I was kind of talking to my friend who's a, who's a GP out there. And I was like, I was like, this is incredible. Like, you know, you'd walk down London and it would be a high street in London and you'd see all these different, you know, and, and she said, the thing is that family and, and being part of family and, and stopping and eating meals together and spending weekends together is really important part of Norwegian culture. And, and equally in Norway, your standard of living is pretty much the same, regardless of whether you're a doctor, a cleaner, a librarian, a teacher. So there's not this this kind of uh, this this gap yeah. in 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 kind of economy, and so everybody can live 
a fairly similar life. And so you're not constantly competing to try and prove that you're you're good enough because you don't need to. You know, you're accepted. If you want to be a cleaner, you're accepted for that. If you want to be a doctor, that's great. You're encouraged to do it, but if you don't get any sort of higher... You're not going to um, end up substantially better off necessarily no, exactly, compared to someone exactly. else. And you're not seen as being any better a person. I think mm. sometimes in this country, we put certain... Uh, professions on pedestals and and that's ridiculous because we're all I mean you know we're all we all work hard we all have a place and we all provide a service and it's like you know why do we put somebody up there and and see them as the expert or or the kind of the main person and and so I mean I love that culture in Norway I, I think it's a brilliant way to be and I've got lots of I mean I've got lots of friends around Europe and I do think the social aspect of sitting around a table, really kind of just, I mean, they'll sit there for hours and they might not necessarily eat tons, but they just sat there talking. And and I think it's, we know that talking therapy or whatever is, is connection with people is so important for your well-being. Yeah, that so kind of evidence about loneliness. And that's really that social connection thing is really emerging. Um, yeah. yeah, I think there's, there's a massive problem with social gradient in the uk and you know the inequality the health inequalities we have and that social that the steepness of that social gradient is far more severe than it is in given our wealth it's extreme and i mean gosh yeah. well people look there's a big difference between i go from when i go to london or walking the streets of blackpool up here in the northwest you can see the difference even in those kind yeah. of it, within the uk as well it's really quite terrifying Listen, that's been absolutely fantastic. I could chat for hours. And I think the most fascinating thing is about, you know, it's of course food. It's just so much more. It's about so much more than the science is so important, but actually it's about so much more. It's embedded yeah. in the whole fabric of our lives, isn't it? And um, you're yeah. obviously doing some incredible work with some incredibly serious conditions as well. And anorexia has probably one of the worst mortalities. Maybe if it's not the worst, I think, of any mental health disorder. It's absolutely an amazingly yeah. challenging group to work with and incredibly important yeah. but you do lots of other things performance athletes and uh, you're obviously just described a few of the things you're involved with where can people find out more about you and and um, link up with you so yeah so my website is a uh, very simple reenemcgregor.com which is nice and easy um i do have instagram which is r underscore mcgregor and um i also have train underscore brave which is obviously the the train brave um instagram and i am on twitter but i can never remember my handle that's okay Um, we'll get a link up on the show notes Um, but that's pretty much me. And, and like, yeah, like you said, you and I'm doing many, many different things. But I, my main areas of expertise are eating disorders and, and sport and obviously the overlap in the middle. Yeah. Of, of the that's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. No worries. It's been lovely to talk to you. OK, well, thanks for listening. You can find the full show notes at www.blocology.io. Uh, you can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blokeology at www.blokeology.io forward slash journal. Sign up and I'll make sure that I send you the Healthy Bloke Action Plan. It would be enormously helpful if you've enjoyed the show, if you've got anything out of it, if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or just leave a rating, that would be incredibly helpful. And any feedback is very welcome. And so you can leave comments, send email or make contact via Twitter, Facebook and the usual social media channels, all of which can be found at blokeology.io. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.